real life superpowers. It's more about having a blanket that's too short and like covering yourself with it anyway. It's, it's more about, and, and we've seen that and I think we just kind of forgot how it matters. Uh, founders that somehow convinced the entire company to stay on even though they can only pay them minimum wage, um, promising your client that they'll to stay on and you'll develop that one feature and promising your R&D to keep working because that client's not going to leave and, and somehow just stitching it together and, and making things work. Welcome to the Real Life Superpowers podcast. I'm Noah Eshed here with my co-host Renan Manipaz. Today, we're pleased to introduce Liron Azrielant. She's a founding managing partner at Miron Capital, a VC at the forefront of investing in technology companies in Israel. Her track record speaks volumes as she's led investments in tech successes such as Loom Systems, Clear Genetics, Testim, and many others which were subsequently acquired. Prior to founding Meron, she was a principal at Bloomberg Capital, where she led early-stage deals that also turned into successful exits. Before her venture capital career, she honed her skills as a strategy and M&A consultant at top-tier firms like Bain & Co. and PwC's PE Group in New York. She is also a fellow of the Kaufman Fellowship, a highly sought-after two-year program for leading venture capitalists. Her list of accolades is long. Let's delve into the life and experiences of this superwoman. Real life. Superpowers. Liron, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Hello, nice to be here. Hey, Liron. Where are you these days? I'm in my office after a, a long time away from it. Uh, what, were you away in uh, conferences or uh, what, what's keeping you away? Uh, well, after October 7th, it's been hard to come to the office every day. Also, we don't have a safe room here. So um, we had to, I think it's... Uh, Like we need to run for like a good minute to, to get to the closest place. So uh, we were working from home for a while, but we've been back to the office for two weeks now. A question that keeps coming up in my mind uh, with respect to things that we're going through these days in Israel and entrepreneurship, I'm, I'm always curious how much uh, an entrepreneurial path of life is helping the the entrepreneurs in these days and the, and I'm putting you in that bucket uh, as an investor as well because you know we, if there's something we understand is that the best in investors are also uh, with the entrepreneurial spirit uh, and 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 the part of the team so I'm wondering how much do you feel that the the roller coaster of entrepreneurship is mentally has mentally prepared you for this reality oh It's a tough question because it's easy to say yes because, oh, you don't know if you'll have a job in a month. So, um, you know, feels like it would kind of prepare you for war, like not knowing how safe you'll be in a month. 
Um, but I think routine is really helpful. And I think a lot of people just had to come back to work or had, had this like, um, wheel of routine that's, that doesn't stop or that had to keep going after a while. I think it was a good home base for them. And, and I think for us, after the initial shock, there was that other part that all the partners, we kind of define our priorities. We define what's next. We define what's important. And after the initial shock, there was this new hurdle of you need to recreate your routine. You need to recreate how you respond. And it becomes this question that's a little too open-ended instead of just doing something. So I had to start with something else. I had to start with, okay, I'm just going to work out every day because that's, I had to start with like a personal routine to, to even get into the mindset of, um, of rebuilding my professional routine. Let's talk about the routine for a second, because like as an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that the past few years are, um, let's call them bizarre, okay? And, and the amount of changes about like the word routine. So let's say if, if I take like 2019, 20-ish, we had this corona thing, and then we had this inflation thing, and then we had specifically in Israel this war thing, and I'm wondering about the routine things, like... Do you feel that like what changes were were made, okay? Like in in cultures, in working, um, like working. Like I grew up on a, in a sense that I I don't know what working in home is. You know what I mean? Like that that was that was nothing. There was nothing of working at home. I didn't understand the concept. And and like what are those main changes? And how does that bother you? Like how do you do maintain a routine where it's already allowed to be at home and whatever? Hard to answer that, honestly. I think um, I think there's kind of two. There's the strategic part and there's the tactical part. So strategically, I think um, I think the problem started even earlier. So if, if you ask me, the real anomaly isn't that there's a recession or maybe even just talks about recessions, a recession now. It's more that everything was just going up and up and up without a recession or without a correction for 12, 13 years before it. So, so I feel like as an entrepreneur, you kind of only knew this one playbook, this raise the most money I can, spend the most money I can, hire the best people, even if they're the most expensive that I can, and... Boom, an amazing company uh, appears almost. And yeah, that works in, in um, uh, growing markets, in good times, that actually works more, more often than it doesn't work. And just being extremely optimistic and not even knowing that there used to be bad times really works. In good economies and and there's this generation that i guess i'm to some extent a part of it i was only starting to be part of the workforce in 2008 so i only have vague memories of it i remember i, I got accepted to a, a master uh, degree so 
all I remember is there were a lot of talks about layoffs in the company. I woke up to the HR woman and I tell her, hey, do you want to fire me? Like, would it, would it help? Would it save some? Because I only knew I was going to quit and go to school. And, and uh, well, yeah, it didn't help her. I, I wasn't saving any other person's job, so I had to quit instead of getting fired. But, um, or getting laid off, I guess. Uh, but yeah, like I didn't actually full-blown experience a market downturn until until now. So, so I think the common denominator in everything that's happened since 2019 is that people had to write a new playbook and also just kind of scratch it after because what seemed to work in 2019, honestly, that just followed by 2020 and 2021. And that was a crazy market rally. So a lot of what worked before continued to work after, but now we're getting into more challenging times. So, so what works now? I think what always works or what's always important, but probably didn't get as much uh, uh, credit in the previous years is resilience. It's, it's more about having a blanket that's too short and like covering yourself with it anyway. It's, it's more about, and, and we've seen that. And I think we just kind of forgot how it matters. Uh, founders that somehow convinced the entire company to stay on, even though they can only pay them minimum wage, um, promising your client that they'll stay, to stay on and you'll develop that one feature and promising your R&D to keep working because that client's not going to leave and, and somehow just stitching it together and, and making things work and just like keep going, you, you know, waking up not knowing if you're going to have to give notice to your employees next week and still doing the best you can and, and, and uh, surviving or, or just uh, uh, fighting another day. And, and, and I think the times where money was so cheap got these um, practices into the market that's like, oh, if you have 12 months of runway, 18 months of runway, you have to fundraise now, which, yeah, that's better if you can, but you should also not lose the muscle of, still surviving if you can't. Right, but but Niran, like, as an investor, right? Like, um, what, how do you measure resilience? Like, when you meet these entrepreneurs, how do you measure it, like, that you know that they're resilient? The short answer is we don't, or we don't know for sure. We always like investing in founders that we know for a longer time. Our best deals are founders that we met much, much earlier. We met a year before they started fundraising. We knew them a long time before. We saw how they work somewhere else. We worked with them through two ideas that actually weren't that great. And um, and they end up changing ideas and changing ideas until until they do find something they want to work with. So, so sometimes only if we're uh, fortunate enough to do the long process with them we actually know. Oftentimes, 
before we gain conviction, those founders get a term sheet from someone else, or um, we see that they they really need to get going and, and we have to decide with incomplete information. We try our best. A lot of the due diligence process isn't really about the answers that the founders give us as we talk. It's not really about knowing the right answer initially. It's more about the discussion. So, oh, how are you going to price it? And let's say they give me the right answer immediately. Sure, it's nice, but that's not that interesting. It's more interesting how they respond when I challenge that, how they respond when they get information that makes their answer to not make as much sense anymore. So, so it's it's a little bit through that process that hopefully you get a peek into it, but unfortunately, it's really hard to tell. We do have some red flags that we try noticing too, and, and our um, I guess our most common reason to reject founders or reject teams, especially in the high peers, or these guys think it's going to be too easy. Every time we we dig deep, we ask questions and we get this feeling of, oh, if we build it, they will come. Or how do you succeed? Ah, you raise money, you raise more money, you sell the company. Or, or which, which was kind of true back then, but you still want people who are prepared for a longer path if, if they need to take it. Um, so, so yeah, we rejected a lot of top, top teams when we had suspicions around that. So you're saying something interesting. So there's entrepreneurs on the long run that failed or had bad ideas or didn't have successes. And, and in the third time, you know, when it counted that you already understood the, you had a relationship with them, you liked them, you trusted them, you knew they tried hard, which is interesting because usually people don't like to come with failures again and again, right? So you're, you're actually taking out those failures. Can, can you give us like an example of someone who, Ooh, I'll call it surprise, but didn't surprise you. Like came from failure to success and like you guys identified it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, by the way, it's not even an actual failure. So you know how investors really like saying, oh, yeah, there's no such thing as too early. Come to me even when it's too early. That's not always true, because if you come to the investor and you make a really bad impression, that, that impression stays. Um, so a lot of times we try to overcome that. We try to really focus on not just, oh, this guy came to us with the worst idea. It's more about what he did when faced with the problems of his idea. Um, and, and I guess uh, uh, the best answer is our la the latest investment we've done. It's a company called Hopper. So Hopper, the CEO, is Roy Gottlieb. I actually know him from, I think, 2015. He was an investor back then. And the one personality trait that stands the most with Roy Gottlieb is that he will either succeed or die, and he's also impossible to kill. So it's just this person that resilience is dripping off him. He would go without a salary if he had to. He would work 10 days consecutively to, to the point of sometimes we need to um, to balance them out a little, but, but he's just so resilient. So 
I feel like we've had that check even be- from the second he said he was an investor before. From the second he said, I'm done being an investor, I'm going to start my own company. So, so we knew he was our type of founder from day one. Um, we followed him through, he, he had a different founder back then. He had, by the way, he had an idea that we liked. We, we thought that idea was good enough. And he said, it's, it's a good, not great idea. And, and he really insisted on doing diligence. And um, the first founder he was sort of like taking a few steps with, uh, once again, good, not good match, not a great match. And, and then he found this guy that um, he found one, his co-founder. That as soon as we saw them together, we were like, wow, like really complementary to each other. Um, Roy is a very dominant person. So you'd think whoever comes with him would be uh, not as dominant, but Ron, like they, they really bring out the best from each other. And, and it was just a really good match. And, and honestly, with him, it was by the time that all these things clicked. It was just so obvious that we wanted to invest in him. It was just a question of how much and what size of a round. And, and to be fair, it was also our biggest check up to that date. And you're describing him and, uh, you know, switching sides and becoming from an investor, an entrepreneur. Does that ever uh, appeal to you? Was there any stage in your journey where you thought, Um, that you want to be do your own thing and set up your own company and and I mean and I'm asking this both from a perspective of somebody who came back from New York and and uh, started investing yourself but also these days yeah um, I'm gonna quote another uh, founder of ours that I really really like and that's uh, Oded Zavi the founder of mesh CEO of founder of mesh He says, wanting to be a, a founder, wanting to be a startup is like wanting to be a celebrity. It doesn't make sense in a vacuum. You should want to play the piano really, really well, and hopefully you'll become famous in it. You should want to be a singer. You should want to be a politician. Just wanting to be famous is, um, sure, I guess Kim Kardashian is that, but... It, it, it's a little bit of the wrong, looking at it from the wrong side. Why is it different than wanting to be an investor? An investor is a profession. It's a trade. There's something. And, and wanting to be a founder is a great motivation. It's just incomplete. It's just, okay, so you want to start something. What are you excited about? What do you want to start? And in Oded's case, he, he, his answer to it is, I wanted to bring something to the, I, I, I wanted to work in payments. I wanted to find a better way to um, manage money, to manage uh, uh, money transfers. And the best way that I can do that now is by starting mesh payments. So Liron, what, what you're trying to say is, is like, if you want to be a founder, it's sort of like an art of creation. Whereas being an investor is a profession of, of diligence and, and, you know, like um, uh, professional like methods and, you know, like calculated methods. That, that's part of it. But I, I guess what I'm saying is 
being a founder is the how and what you do, what you found, what is the what. So if you are the most excited about solving a certain problem, ideally, you should be excited about that problem. And if the best way that you can solve that problem is by being a founder, that's amazing. You're a founder. It's, it's, it's a more complete uh, motivation. Can I challenge that? Do you mind if I challenge that? Because there's also a founder for, for you know, your, your company. There's also a founder, right? Which probably has the same kind of challenge, right? At a certain point, the best way for me to move forward with being an investor, I was working at Bloomberg Capital. Um, then I, um, um, you know, I started Maron Capital at first as a single LP, but then as a multi. So, so yeah, at a certain point, the best way forward for me to be an investor in the way that I wanted to be an investor was to found something new. What investor did you want to be and, and why did you want to be an investor? Let's, let's go back there. I think being an investor isn't something, so I'm like being a lawyer, being a doctor, most professions, it's not something you study in the university. So it's very much an apprenticeship business. Most investors behave somewhat similarly to the people they uh, grew up working with. Um, and, and I think this makes learning how to be an investor very complicated. I think what's unique in myself and Danny, Miron Capital, um, now it's myself, Danny, and Gil, um, we're a three-partner firm now, is that a lot of what we learned, we learned ourselves. So we did start with Bloomberg Capital. We learned a lot from Alone Leaf Sheets that we still very much appreciate. But most of our career was within Milan Capital. So we're very much investors that have a founder mindset. And we're very much... Not, not, not in the sense there's a lot of founders. There's a lot of investors that used to be founders. I think who we are is investors who are still founders. We're still building our company. We're still thinking how we position ourselves, how we strengthen the brand, how we grow up, how we get to the next level. And, and I think it comes in, in a lot of how we invest and how we work with founders. And But what led you to want to become an investor in the first place. What led to this career path? What about How this was know? appealing? Yeah. Ah, wow. I, uh, I don't know that I know to this day. I just know that I like what I'm doing and like it works so far. Maybe it ties a little back with what I said about a desire to be a founder is an incomplete desire that you need to be excited about something. And I think I kind of never found that one thing. So a lot of my roles ended up being very broad roles. So I started out actually wanting to be uh, um, into computer science. So, so I got a master's in computer science, but I, met, I combined it with an MBA. I thought I was going to be a 
develop developers manager or a CTO somewhere. That that, that was my original uh, thinking, but. I ended up focusing more on the MBA part, on the business school, and I ended up becoming a management consultant after, which is probably the broadest role you could think of. But you didn't end up because you are self-aware and calculated. So let's zoom in on that. Why did you end up not being a CTO uh, and, and, or, or you know, any of those other options and going that, down that road? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure as a, as a woman, woman with computer science, you you get multiple offers. You know, after having an MBA, after yeah, working, this, this was a know, choice. It, like, I'm sure. Uh, wow, not not sure I can answer. So, first of all, um, so I got my master's in computer science after a bachelor in math. I'm sorry, like this might sound uh, a bit ingenuous, but I wasn't that good in computer science. Uh, math is completely theoretical and computer science specifically at MIT, it, it, like the joke on, on these on MIT grads is that they don't know how to code. I, I, most of my training was just very theoretical. So I, I don't, in terms of offers, in terms of where I was, I have to tell you, it didn't feel like I was being pulled into that direction all that strongly. But but maybe that's that's a bit of a cop out. Is it, is it because maybe like is it because of the tangibles? Because it's a feeling that I have. Because like something about you seeing the business, you know, like it's not virtual. It's like there's people, there's a company, and it, the due diligence and analytic features that you have, like were were felt like more at home you know what I mean like did you feel more at home about like the business side of it than anything else now I do now I definitely do but back then I don't think that way it was I think in all honesty it might just be that I ended up there in in terms of so management consulting if after two years of business school, you still don't know what you want to do when you grow up, you go to be a management consultant. That's just another two years of business school. And at the point where I was when I graduated, that's exactly what I wanted. It was like, oh, two more years of this, not having to commit to one career path and getting paid for it and getting the um, social validation of being like doing one of the top careers, the, the the smartest graduates went to be a consultant. So it seemed to make sense. And, and and also I had this thought that, oh, okay, so you get a taste of each industry. I'll definitely find my industry if I get a taste of, and, and you know what I learned after two years of getting a taste of each industry? That I kind of like getting a taste of each industry. So <laughs> that was really a random uh, uh, turn of events, but they tell you, oh, uh, pick New York and San Francisco, but also everybody pick New York and San Francisco, so pick another thing. So I picked Atlanta. I had an internship in Atlanta. I felt like it, it was a cheap place to live, nice weather. Like, yeah, okay, Atlanta. I ended up getting Atlanta. So and at Bain & Company, private equity is the biggest hub in Atlanta. So I ended up doing a lot of private equity deals at Bain in Atlanta. And that's 
sort of how I first learned of the world of PE back then. And, and it's a very bird's eye view. It's like, oh, we want to buy this computer company. We want to buy this staffing firm for doctors, things you didn't, this tire company, things you didn't even know were businesses and, and suddenly you're learning about them. And, and yeah, that part was fun. And, and, and I can tell you that honestly, I do kind of regret not going deep into anything. You, you know, my sister, she's a doctor and she's a researcher in, uh, uh, psoriasis and, and and I see how she does and, and it's like she's using her brain a lot more she's she's more on and 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 I miss that being being so bird's eye is a little is is to some extent a very superficial job a lot of what I do is just taking things I see and putting them into boxes um but it's also, but they also like doing it. So, 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 so I'm not sure. <laughs> like, what kind of a house did you grow up in? Are your parents entrepreneurs or what, 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 what was the profile? So my dad, how do I define my dad? My dad's a businessman. Now, today, he's a divorce lawyer. Before that, he had a business for sort of like reconciliation. I'm not even sure what's the word in that. Uh, mediation. Uh, and before that, he had a business of jewelry, a jewelry company in Israel. Um, so my, my dad actually uh, got his law degree at 40. So he had a lot of career path. And my mom is a lawyer, too. She's a uh, um, traffic law. And uh, um they're both very alpha. They're both um, working really hard. My, my dad, he's uh, uh, over 70 and he still works as if he's uh, just in the middle of his career and he still gets excited about, um, you, you know, expanding his business, growing, growing more. Um, and yeah, and I guess my two siblings are also pretty alpha. Um, not, not sure what, uh, how, how to frame that as a house, but you know, we all loved, loved each other. Maybe we were a little too competitive at times, but um, mostly in a good way. It sounds like a career oriented house there. Like career was important. Yeah. Like, like, I guess, I guess uh, my, my brother is one of the two founders of Axis security, which was one of the biggest cyber exits of the year. So the competition was tough. So like I, when you got to MIT, like that was like a big thing probably. Yeah. Like, like I said, I think we're always to some extent, like, but, but mostly in a good way, mostly in a way that it got us to, to want to, to be better. And, but also we, we kind of work with each other. You, you know, I, I, like when my brother was younger, I was trying to help him out. Now I don't, there's not like a cyber deal I do without asking his opinion. He also invested in, in Hopper, the company that I just mentioned. Um, so, so it's like, yeah, I guess when we were teenagers, it was different, but now it's more like, like we're friends, I guess. 
We're excited to be collaborating with the Israeli website CTEC, owned by Kalkalist, Israel's leading business newspaper. CTEC is the gateway of the Israeli high-tech to the tech world and vice versa. If you're not already a regular reader, we strongly recommend that you check out kalkalistech.com, C-A-L-C-A-L-I-S-T-E-C-H.com, to stay up to date on all high-impact stories from the Israeli tech scene. When you're going out in this, in this house that's career-oriented, right? So, like, usually the stories of, uh, you know, like, yeah, non-entrepreneurs or, or uh, they, they go study what, the, like, the parents do, right? So, so like, what, what, what was the decision to go offbeat on that? I think I always wanted to be a not-lawyer uh, <laughs> or, like, not a lawyer. Is that something that they, did they encourage you to become a lawyer or, because we see that also, like there, there's the parents that tell you, go run as far as you can from what I'm doing or continue my path. That's, that's the way you should go. Yeah. Um, I don't think they encouraged me to be a lawyer that much. I think also, um, in Israel, it was considered Uh, one of the top jobs when it, like, like it lost some of his pre- its prestige in in the years that I was growing up so so maybe that also played into it I think they always encouraged us to be very very analytical probably more analytical that we wanted like it didn't seem to um, it, it, it didn't like some of us were also kind of creative but that never made mattered as much but yeah like not um there is just this general push towards career in general it didn't really matter it's it's like the funny thing is if you ask my mom to this day what i do she would still say something in high tech like i don't think no she way. fully understands <laughs> what being an investor is she just knows it's like something good But, but that is you pulling away to a creative because what you're doing today is like even going to like uh, um, if you see a lot of businesses like the some of the ideas what your added value is that you can you take a little bit cherry pick from all the things and you combine them and you're actually like you know finding the synergy and analyzing what will work and, and probably a lot of you know joint ventures and partnerships between those things and networking which is very creative so you actually ran to the creative side. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of, like, call it poor man's psychology. It's, it's like, uh, I, I remember, I know, after, after my first, like, 10,000 hours in this job, I remember noticing that I can see relationships in, in terms of I could tell which couple's going to break up just from having that skill of seeing how founders, like, which founders work and which founders don't work yeah like it, it ends up my math training tends to be the least important so how do you how do you know if a partner's good or not or, or a couple's not good give us like the, the three they're gonna break up so at this point it's intuition but I'm gonna try and break it down j- just to kind of explain what we're in tune to um, so so for example um, Some things are structural. If you ask what people roles are in the team and two roles really overlap with each other, 
then you know there's a risk. You know they're going to have to make a huge effort not to step on each other's toes, and hopefully they'll succeed, but they're putting themselves in a difficult situation to begin with. Then there's the more social cues. For example, if the presentation is too rehearsed, like if they don't cut each other off at all, we know that they cut each other off and they realize it and they train, like, and they proactively decide that this is my part, this is not my part. Um, for example, when uh, when myself and our when when us three partners present something, we never say, "Oh, you present this thing, you present that thing." We we just talk, and if we cut each other off, it's like, "Oh, sure, you go." Like it's it's fine. If if it feels too staged, there's probably an issue. If it, it's you, you wouldn't believe it, but sometimes you can see people get mad like it's 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 minor but it's there in the actual presentation and it's like it's 45 minutes just keep it in but they don't they, they never do so you're actually looking for like ego and authenticity like those are like the two the two like your intuition is looking for ego and authenticity and by that you know knowing where it's gonna go ego authenticity and, and sometimes just chemistry between them. Sometimes, you know, two people could have huge egos and and, and it would work. You know, I think potentially, like, people I work with have, as well as myself, like, have two egos that if you look at it in a vacuum, it's not expected to work, but somehow we make it work. So, so that's, that comes back to the longer relationship. So when you have a longer relationship, you can actually you know, see that authenticity and ego working with people and it makes it much easier to understand if you'll work well with a team and everything else, right? Is that? Yes, and, and it ties back to resilience as well because people who are strong and people who are resilient also, um, even if they have a huge ego, even if they have huge emotions, by the way, which is also another axiom of that, they find ways to make things work, you know, they, they find structures, they find, um, so they realize they have a giant ego, they find the um, the words, they find like something like, okay, I'm, I'm, I need a day, and then they like yell at a pillow or something, or, you know, they, they find um, the crutches they need to, to go past the, the crises instead of just like slamming into them. Did you always have that or is it a skill set that you built? Definitely not always, always. But, you know, I can tell you with my partner, it's it, it, like Danny and I have been working together for seven years now. We have a language. We have like we could, you know, we could really passionately argue with each other and it's going to be like a normal argument. Like, is Elon Musk a supervillain? That's something we love arguing about. Um, he is, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these days it's clear. Yeah, or, or uh, you, you, you know, it'll be like, and, and, and we annoy each other and it'll be fine. But then one of us gets like really annoyed and it'll be like, okay, not now. And, and, and that's like our signal to break. And... and and I have that with my husband. All meaningful relationships I have, I have those like um, uh, sign language that we know 
to, um, to, to sort of like guard the relationship, to, to climb down from the tree. Um, and, and, and I think like it, it's a trait for like strong and maybe um, self-aware people. Do you think that maybe you landing where you are, uh, which I still don't believe is coincidental in any way, is you, you took uh, an analytical path, but you were sort of pulled, probably internally, I would say, towards a more of a people's path. And do you feel that you're more left brain or right brain? I think I was originally... Very, very, uh, I forgot which one's which. Um, the right is the, the, the creative. Analytical, that's, that's right brain, right? The, the analytical, I think, is the left. Oh, because it's, yeah, okay. I think I was born 100% more analytical. I think I always took an interest in the more creative and the more people-prone side, even though I sucked at it. Why do you say that you sucked at it? Uh, naturally, because I did. I don't think I grew up with, like, very developed social skills. You know, like, younger, I remember wanting people to like me or not understanding how other people are feeling. Or even I had, um, my girlfriends were, like, mad at me. I was like, oh, what's wrong? Like, I didn't even understand how they were feeling. Like, I... Growing up, I, I don't think I had those skills because I, I remember not having those skills. Um, and, and I think I just got my 10,000 hours of it. It's it, it just like you, you, you care about this and you observe how people are and you look how um, like the world responds to you. And, and, and I think now I got very good at it. That that's uh, um, that, that just like my uh, personal analysis on myself. That's really interesting, though, because that's that's like really extreme uh, that as a teen, you would look at social situations and not read the cues and not understand them. And then through what you're describing as practice, we're able to develop such skills to an extent that you now identify cues that are not even verbal and are able to predict where a social situation is going to end up. Like there's a there's something here that's very interesting in the arc of what you've you've been through. May, maybe I'm just suggesting it was less about not understanding stuff but more about silencing other noises and then being more in tune with yourself because I I find it just really hard to believe or or grasp that a person suddenly is able to develop something to that extent, which wasn't there in the first place. I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I think I have friends who, like I talked, I have other like late bloomer friends and, and, and I think they also felt very similar to me. And, and, and I think it's like, um, uh, I, I think something very, individual you, you know there's this um i think it's part of the book blink but maybe it was one of the other uh so you know how um the firefighters walked into the place they didn't see anything they couldn't tell you what they saw but they felt like they should get out of there they got out of there and the place collapsed and then they 
analyze what happened and you realize that the heat was different because it was coming from below, like all sorts of things that they could have actually saw or smelled or uh, felt, but they didn't. All they felt was danger. So I think when you develop skills early, it's like a feeling. It's like he's happy. He's sad. They get along. They don't like it. It's um, um, it's like a feeling. But when you develop them late, it's like a thought. It's it's like uh, it, it's kind of um, we all know how to drive, and we don't really think of how much we turned the wheel. We just turned the wheel. But there was a time that we had to break it down to to something. So, so, so the way I feel about a lot of the, um, the the way that I understand social interactions and and the way that I um, uh, see people and understand my friends, I feel like it was um, taught late and and you know and. and I think a lot of my friends are also late bloomers in that sense. And it's something that we connect with each other. And, and I think when you experience that, it's a lot more natural to you to, to, to feel it. Leon, I'm, I actually think you're saying something really, really important and amazing. And I'll, I'll explain why, why like, you know, you're saying that it, and I, I agree with you actually, when you, if something comes naturally, okay. And it's intuitive. Um, you don't actually become, um, probably better at it because you have it. And because you felt that you're lacking it, you studied that and did that 10,000 hours and came a skill set. Whereas someone gets the intuition of feeling, I think he's happy because I usually know he's happy. You are knowing, not in a sense, knowing his mind, but knowing, knowing what it is because you're adding to that logic. And you're putting something yeah. that is emotional and, and logical, and then and then because of the lacking it, it's it's now a skill set and not a uh, characteristic. So you actually got better at something that is, is is that made method of something that is really hard to make tangible, and it's a skill set. So that's the added value to that, which is really a, interesting. It's like putting things that are so difficult to identify under a magnifying glass and being able to label them and then take action and build off them. That's fascinating. I'm trying to understand how that goes along with feelings because what we're discussing is something that is not logical and yet you're describing it as such, but it seems to be working for you. And you also don't strike as a detached person emotionally. Yeah, no, it's not... Um like I, I separate the interface from the CPU. You're not like detached. Like no, I don't think I ever had a CPU issue. Like I always wanted my friends to feel happy. That's the drive of getting better. But the metaphor is fascinating. Like she took it so analytically. I separate the interface from the CPU. That's fascinating. Yeah, although although it just proves that anything you can get better when you put the ten thousand hours to it, like it doesn't really like that was what's important for her. You know, no, but we you all know have lack something you're, and we want to get more no, better at it. But it just means anything 
If you want, you can get better at it. Yeah, but even that research talks about deliberate practice. You can practice for 10,000 hours, and that's actually the misconception because Malcolm Gladwell took that concept of 10,000 hours and he brought it into popular culture. But it was actually Eric Reyes, who was, the, the I think he's a um, social scientist who was coining it in the first place, and he's talking about deliberate practice, and there's a huge difference. And it's really interesting that you were able to apply that deliberate practice, because it's not enough to just be there and putting the hours and practice. It's about actually being intentional about it and having a learning curve. And you were, and you seem to have been very deliberate about this, which requires EQ. Yeah, honestly, like it's kind of like the difference between playing soccer and teaching soccer or like... I get you. Which is yeah. another analogy, which is great because you're on the investor teaching mentoring end rather than the playing on your play field, which is also really interesting. So, so honestly, a lot of times I find that part really helpful because I could put words into emotional problems, into... Um, you, 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 you know, I, um, a founder comes up to me and he's mad about something and, and, and it's just easier for me to, to break it down. It's like, what makes you mad? It's because you think that person has influence. Don't worry. He doesn't. So you can like, there's, there's this, um, sort of a coaching skill set that comes with it. And, and that's. It's practical, practical empathy. Yeah. What would you say your superpower is? Maybe that. Like, I, I have a name for it that makes, like, it's, uh, it maybe has, like, some bad connotations, but they call it social engineering, and, and I think that's a little bit of what it is. And, and it is, like, bringing the, like, math, and, and and it's more and, and and you know it's it's more about it, it's from everything it's from getting my friend to stop worrying about something she should stop worrying about to um unclustering a board situation that's not going so well like I, I think a lot of times, and especially when it's different people at play, that makes it really difficult to do. And 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 I think I'm pretty good at. I, I'm even better at the strategy of it all than the tactics. Like a lot of times, I know exactly what needs to be done, but they can't always deliver it. So, and, and by the way, this is sometimes where me and my partner work really well together because he, he, he's, he's really good at um, uh, the, the, like getting to people, uh, empathizing with people. So, so sometimes when, when we need to help someone, we, we work together really well on this. Um, but yeah, I do think that's, <laughs> that's a superpower. And what would you say your weakness is? Ego. And this is this is even with being an investor. There is something really frustrating with being the investor because you stand on the sideline and you cheer and you need to see someone else running and, and you know, uh, uh, winning the game. And I 
find it sometimes hard for me. I find like I need to get over myself to, to be fine doing it. How do you do that? I remind myself that the people that end up being most successful oftentimes have people even more successful next to them. Or um, I remind myself that if, if someone in my orbit has like amazing success, it, it, what the most helps me is someone's going to be that successful. Don't you prefer it to be this guy than someone you don't know? Or, um, yeah, no, I, I need to, honestly, I need to work on myself on this. But the reason I say that ego is my weakness is because my go-to is um, when something good happens to drag it to how that impacts on myself and not just be happy, like not go outside myself. It's like, uh, maybe it's more like uh, self-centered than ego, or maybe it's somewhere in between. Um, but yeah, but it, 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 it's just work on my side. Maybe it's the fact that you're able to label it and sort of look within and understand that you're experiencing that emotion in the first place is what's enabling you to deconstruct it and be able to get over it. Yeah, maybe it's like like I do with everything. <laughs> By the way, one of your superpowers has to be self awareness because you're what like amazingly self aware and analyzed, and, and which is a, which is a great superpower, right? And especially on where you are, even saying that weakness itself, the self awareness of it just becomes it becomes a problem that you can actually tackle, right? Because it's an intangible. Yeah, hopefully, although that's been the case for years, so who knows. <laughs> By, by the way, speaking of awareness, I was uh, realizing that I mentioned that Eric Reyes was the 10,000-hour deliberate practice dude, but I'm realizing that Eric Reyes is the one with the lean startup, the MVP approach, and Dr. Anders Ericsson is the one uh, that wrote Peak about 10,000 hours. So that's sorry, the, the geek here had to inject that and correct the mistake. For it. I'm happy. I'm really I happy. You, I, you were probably I was stressed about that. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> So, Liran, what do we wish you? Where Where do you hope to be? Uh, in, what What's your next milestone? Next milestone. Um, it's a very boring milestone because it's not that um, milestoney. But I just want to keep doing what I'm doing, but better. It's It's like we want to work with more and more of Israel's toppest founders. We want to be more competitive on the deals that, on the people that we want to work. We want to have more successes of the types that we've had before. Um, so, so yeah, just like, I guess, stay in Meron Capital and just have it keep getting better. Sounds good. Seems like you're in the direction there. I hope so. Leon, thank you so much for your time. It was great. And I uh, wish you the best yeah. of like, luck. And uh, keep coming back to that beautiful office. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. Thank you, guys. Thank you. That's all for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider subscribing to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, if you have a moment, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and review our podcast on the platform you're listening to. This will help others find our show. And as always, if you know anyone who you think would enjoy our podcast, please share it with them. 
Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back as usual on the first of the month. Real life superpowers. Superpowers.